Welcome to another episode of Bothell Amplified. It's Mackenzie Britton. I'm the producer for the podcast and your temporary host while Pastor Joe is on vacation. We are pleased to welcome back Reverend Ashley Skinner Creek of the Seattle Pacific Seminary, preaching from Genesis chapter 37 verses 1 through 4 and 12 through 28. Reverend Skinner Creek dives into how we can be called into live and serve into becoming Christ in the community. Check it out now on Bothell Amplified. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, friends. It is great to be with you here this morning. Uh, As you know, we had an issue with the live stream this week, so I'm actually recording the sermon for you on the next day. So today's Monday, but excited to still be able to share with the people of Bothell UMC, uh, especially the ones who join us online. It's always a privilege of mine to be able to serve my fellow clergy colleagues um, 
so that they can take time away, take vacation, and especially a gift to get to serve um, Pastor Joe as he is taking a sabbatical this summer. Before we jump into this text for today, would you pray with me? Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be holy and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I am pretty much from the Pacific Northwest. I say pretty much because I've lived in Washington for over 20 years, which I think makes this home. But I did move around a bit in elementary school. I was born in New York and lived there three years, so long enough to remember absolutely nothing about it. Um, And then my family moved to New Jersey. My dad was in the Air Force, which was the reason for a lot of our moving. And so I ended up going to quite a few different elementary schools. And looking back, you sort of learn like every district, especially districts that are in different states, have some unique things about them. For example, I did not grow up going on field trips to the Pacific Science Center, to the zoo, but I remember going to on field trips to cranberry bogs. Another thing, in New Jersey, I think it was really common that if you had a summer birthday, you would start school early. Um, So I graduated high school when I was 17, and I had a ton of people when I graduated in Washington who were over a year older than me. They had summer birthdays and they started um, a year later than I did, which was kind of weird. Um, So the biggest difference, though, that I remember being significant when I moved as a kid was when we moved to Washington, we first moved to Spanway. And then in my sixth grade year, we moved about four weeks into the school year to Kent, and I stayed in the Kent School District for the rest of my schooling. Now, as the summer coming up to sixth grade was happening, uh, I knew it was the big year, the big year where you started doing music. You got to either join band or orchestra, and so you got to pick your instrument, you got to decide which one you were going to be a part of, and I had made the big decision that I was going to be a clarinet player. Um, So I was really excited. I started the school year. I was about four weeks in, had finally figured out what a reed was and, you know, maybe had learned one note on the clarinet and it was time for us to move. Well, the thing about the Kent School District was that they had started students in band and orchestra in fifth grade. So when I showed up for my first week of school, everyone was a year ahead of me at playing their instrument, at playing the clarinet. It was a tough, tough year. I mean, sixth grade is a particularly challenging time to move, and then to add spending a whole year being pretty bad at something in comparison to everyone else in the class. Like, I didn't have words for this back then, but now I know this about myself. I am pretty, I I really don't enjoy not being good at things, and so that was pretty hard for my sixth grade self. So end of sixth grade year came and my mom had the good wisdom that we we were going to rent this clarinet, Uh, not because she knew we were moving, I think just because she knew like I'd already dropped out of piano lessons, I had quit the church choir, like music was maybe not going to be my thing. I think she knew that. So we had rented the clarinet and it was a time to return the clarinet rental. And so 
we went to the store we went we rented it we went to the store that we rented it from I brought in my clarinet I set it on the counter and um, the guy looked at me and I kid you not this is what he said he said oh so we have a quitter yeah my mom was pretty upset um, but here's the thing I don't know what it is about this world that causes some people to want to crush others, to dash their dreams, to kick them when they're down. But our scripture text today reminds me that it's been going on basically since the beginning of time. We are a mere 37 chapters into scripture and not only do a group of brothers plot to kill their younger brother's dreams, but actually to kill their younger brother. Now, recall where we are in the narrative of Genesis at this point. We have Abraham to whom God has promised people, land, and most importantly, God has promised that through his offspring, all nations on earth would be blessed. Blessing and redemption would come through the people of Abraham's line, the people who were God's people. So this story begins to follow Abraham and his family, and it's, well, it is messy and more than a bit dysfunctional from the start. If you remember, Isaac inherits the promise from Abraham, but that's only after Abraham and Sarah get impatient waiting for a child. And so Abraham has another child through Hagar, his first child. And then once Isaac is born, Abraham and Sarah send Hagar and Ishmael away because of the threat they pose to Isaac's reception of his inheritance. Then when the promise is passed on from Isaac to Jacob, there's that whole debacle, debacle between Jacob and Esau. You remember this? This is where Isaac's wife, Rebecca, assists Jacob in stealing the birthright and blessing from his blind father, which was due to Esau. You know, it's, it, it includes Jacob pretending to be Esau in part by putting on the skins of young goats to seem hairy like his brother. So Jacob inherits this blessing and the story begins to follow Jacob. Again, a pretty chaotic and messy story. You'll recall that Jacob sees Rachel working in the field and he immediately falls in love with her. Jacob asks Laban, who's Rachel's dad, to marry Rachel. And Laban agrees, but he says, you can only marry her after you work in my fields for seven years. I always find it worth noting simply because it's humorous that the author um, deems it necessary to include that the seven years seemed to Jacob but a few days because of the love he had for her. Oh, what a classic love story. Well, after those few days, I mean seven years, are over, Laban makes a switch between Rachel and Rachel's older sister Leah giving Leah to Jacob instead. Now, how he makes this switch and how Jacob doesn't realize it till morning, I'm not sure. And the narrative doesn't tell us. Uh, but once Jacob realizes that this is Leah uh, and not Rachel, he protests. And so then Laban also agrees to give Rachel to Jacob um, after another seven years of service. I mean, I am telling you, 
this is all pretty messy. These women, they end up constantly being jealous of one another and the children they are or aren't bearing. Leah is able to have children. Rachel cannot. Both ask Jacob to have children through not only them, but through their maids, Bilhah and Zilpah, who we hear about in the text today. Finally, after there are 10 other children born to, or 10 other sons born to women who are not Rachel, God remembers Rachel and Joseph is born. So then Rachel will have one more son, Benjamin, who uh, she will die during childbirth, giving birth to. And so then Genesis 37 picks up by saying, this is the story of the family of Jacob. A little bit of a dysfunctional family. Now, remember, Jacob, he loved Rachel the most, so I suppose it follows that he would love Joseph more than any of his other children. He was the first child from the wife that Joseph, or that Jacob wanted all along, the first child from Rachel. And let me just say this now. We're not looking to Jacob or really any of the characters in the story we've reviewed leading up to this point for wisdom on how to raise or relate to our families. I don't have children, but I'm pretty sure an important rule is not to have favorites. It's not good for you. It's not good for them. Instead, in Genesis, what we are following is the passing on of God's promise through imperfect people and broken families, the passing on of God's promise, a promise that is constantly threatened by selfishness, greed, impatience, violence, and fear, a promise that is threatened and yet perseveres. So Joseph is Jacob's favorite. And because Jacob is the favorite, Joseph does things like give him special gifts, like the robe with long sleeves. Now you may have heard of this robe called a coat of many colors or uh, the technicolor dream coat. These are all, which that's a translation that comes from the Greek version of the text, not the Hebrew text. So if you're wondering where that comes from, that's where it comes from. But they're talking about the same type of gift, this well-ornamented, elaborate coat. The brothers, they see their father's favoritism towards Jacob and their response, or towards Joseph and their response is hatred. Literally, it says that they hated him so much that they could not speak peaceably to him. They couldn't even force a nice conversation. Now, I mean, under the best of circumstances, it can be challenging for siblings to get along. And sure, there's all the tropes about the youngest child being the one who is spoiled or whatever, of course. I mean, I have to say this, right? I'm the oldest. And so it's sort of like a rule uh, that you have to believe that if you're the oldest. But I know plenty of parents that try their best to give all of their love to all of their children and not to play favorites. And still siblings fight and argue and don't get along and think the other one is the favorite. That's the best case scenario. But if there was a legitimate favorite, especially when there are a number of stepbrothers and there's some enmity between the moms, and yeah, it's going to make things pretty tough for everyone. Worse off, Joseph, he, he decides, uh, worse off, Joseph, he starts to have these dreams, these dreams that are pretty on the nose. 
I'm not really sure why the lectionary chooses to cut out verses 5 through 11, but I think what happens in these verses is, is pretty important. It says that once Joseph had this dream and he decides to share it with his brothers. It says this, Listen to this dream that I dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. Then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. We don't really need any fancy dream interpretation on this one. It's pretty clear what's happening. It's not like that weird dream where you wake up and you're like, what? Why did I just have a dream that I was on a spaceship going to Mars with someone I haven't seen since high school and haven't thought about in over a decade? And then we ended up not on Mars, but in Nevada. Like I, what does it mean? It's not like that. This is a pretty clear dream suggesting that Joseph would rise to a place of power and reign over his brothers who would bow down before him. Joseph has known that his brothers aren't happy with him, so it seems ah, a bit unwise, maybe leaning towards boastful, for him to decide that he should tell this dream to his brothers. But he does, perhaps because it is something that the Lord has revealed to him. Now his brothers not only hate him, but they are jealous of him. We tend to be threatened by the success of others, and they are threatened by the success of Joseph represented in this dream. You know, maybe Jacob should have known that this would be a good time to keep the kids separated, that, that they needed to be in their own rooms for a little bit. But he doesn't, and he sends Joseph to go find his brothers, uh, who, the, who he then finds in Dothan. From a distance, they see him coming along, and before he came near to them, they conspired or plotted to kill him, literally made a plan to get rid of their brother. These brothers are so immensely threatened by Joseph's possible success and power and so unwilling to consider that this dream might actually be from God that they devise a plan. And so they say this to one another. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, and we shall see what becomes of his dreams. Joseph becomes the first prophet in scripture whose prophecies are met with violence. This dream, this prophecy, it causes conflict, tension, violence, and grief, all because Joseph dared to share what God had revealed to him in a dream, all because Joseph dared to challenge the status quo and current societal structures. The older brothers, they cannot imagine a world where their brother would rule. They are enjoying their security as the eldest, and sure, maybe one of them could rule, but not their little brother. They will not put up with a reversal of the way things are. So their way to deal with the dream is to kill it, and the way to kill the dream is to kill the person. Ultimately, they end up acting in such haste that they don't kill him, but they basically leave him for dead. Remember, Reuben makes this sort of, kind of attempt to save his brother by saying, we shouldn't kill him, but maybe we should just like throw him in a pit. And so they end up stripping him all of his clothes and of all of his dignity, and they, they put him in a pit, and then the text says that they go and have a meal. Brothers sitting in the pit over there, left for dead, and they go to enjoy a meal while he suffers. And then, finally, 
make the decision that instead of leaving him for dead, they should sell him to the Ishmaelites to get rid of him forever. Or so they think. Let us see what comes of his dreams. We don't have to think too far back in history to recall people who have been killed for their dreams. The first that comes to mind is probably already on your mind as well. It is the famous Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, part of a narrative that actively challenged the status quo, that dared to hope for a better life for African and African-American persons in this society, a dream, a prophecy of equity and fairness, a dream, a narrative, a prophecy that got him killed. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. Here comes the dreamer. Let us kill him and see what comes of his dreams. I also think of the DREAM Act that has constantly been introduced into legislation allowing protection for certain immigrants who came to the United States as children but are vulnerable to de deportation, allowing them a route to citizenship. This piece of legislation, legislation, a DREAM that has constantly been voted down and squashed. Or what about immigration in general and the people who are met with violence and inhumanity when they dared to dream of a better life for their families by coming to a new country? Yes, our society, our world has a good way of killing dreams, especially when those dreams are coming from those who are marginalized. Here comes the dreamer. Let us kill him and we shall see what becomes of his dream. Or, of course, you have Jesus. Jesus who says in Luke chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Crucify him. Here comes the dreamer. Let us kill him and we shall see what becomes of his dreams. But dreams have a way of living on when God is involved. Dreams can be resurrected when they are God's dreams, even when society continually tries to kill the threat of hope. Our world today is bursting at the seams with dreams, with people who are challenging the status quo and daring to hope that we have a future that is better than the present. They are leaning into God's visions of equity and inclusion. And some of those dreams seem so completely unbelievable and improbable that our, that our response might be to squash them. As you follow the story of Joseph, you will see that even though his brothers attempt to get rid of both the dreamer and the dream, the dream still comes to fruition. Perhaps you today... Are dreaming. Perhaps you have proclaimed a dream in your life, in the lives of your people that has been met with opposition, with violence, that has been squashed and that has been shut down. Let me remind you that dreams have a way of living on when God is involved and dreams can be resurrected when they are God's dreams. 
There are people in our world and on our streets and in our lives who are crying out with God-sized dreams. Dreams of hope and dreams of joy and dreams of justice. Dreams that might seem impossible to us, but I believe that God is right there with them in those movements. The question for us is, will we be a part of what God is doing? Will we fan the flames of these dreams and live into the prophetic vision of mutual flourishing, of justice, of equity that is being proclaimed from the streets? Will we discern God's will together, even if the dream comes from someone who, at this particular moment, we cannot even speak peaceably with? Or will we join with the hordes of people ready to squash those dreams? Because it will cost too much. Because it threatens us. Because it seems too wishful, too impossible. Because it will demand too much of us. Because I will have to lay down my privilege. Because, 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 because the dream is coming from the wrong person. Because God can't really be speaking through them, can God? Because I just don't like that dream. My friends, it is far too easy to kill dreams that seem impossible, but it's far more difficult, but also important to come alongside a dreamer and say, if God is with you, then I am with you too. My friends, as you go into this week, May you go dreaming. May you dream God's dreams. God's dreams of justice. God's dreams of love. God's dreams of peace. May you dream these dreams for yourself and for your neighbor, for your community, and for our church. May these be God's dreams that are dreamed for this world. And may you go listening, listening for God's dreams in the voices and cries of others. May you go this day in love. May you go this day in joy. May you go this day in grace. And may you go this day in peace. Amen.